This is Max Grudenchik, Rom from Deep Space Nine, and you're listening to Neil Before Pod. Thank you. Neil Before Blog presents Neil Before Pod. Welcome to another episode of Neil Before Pod, the podcast that is really high on mushrooms. So we're doing a very long delayed discussion about Star Trek Discovery Season 2. And to do that, I'm going to have to beam in some help. Welcome aboard, Chris. Hope I didn't scramble you too much. Not too much. Not this time. Good. Good. Oh, and I'm your host, Craig. I forgot to introduce myself, but I'm the captain of this here ship who knows how to use a transporter. So there we go. I know. It's, it's very nice for a captain to actually come down to his own transporter room and beam me over. Normally, they've just got some junior officer sitting here instead. Or Miles O'Brien. Mm. He has nothing else to do. The most important man in Starfleet history. <laughs> the most, yeah, the most important man in Starfleet history. Not evidenced by this TV show that we're going to talk about. <laughs> But before we get on to that, we shall do our usual ritual. We shall discuss the kneel befores and rises against of the week. It's not even the week, it's probably like months or years, who knows. But it's the kneel befores and rises against that feature, that thing that we do. So why do you kick us off with your kneel before? I am going to kneel before, I think we've not talked about this in the podcast yet, the new June trailer which has been released i'm very excited about this film i'm really really looking forward to it i have the feeling if i am massively disappointed by this cinema is over for me that's it if lockdown (laughs) didn't kill off cinema for me if a disappointing june film will definitely do that it's got a great cast it looks really really good from this graphics and that look great production design stuff looks awesome yeah just looks really really exciting i'm looking forward to seeing this version of it yeah it does look awesome it's Denis Villeneuve's latest mm. flop, I think. <laughs> you know, after Blade Runner, just <laughs> didn't make enough money. But it's quite interesting that studios are willing to give him a lot of money to not get it back, to make these kind of avant-garde, big sci-fi things. And yeah, June, I think it's planned as a multiple-part series, but I guess it needs to make money first. And in this economy, who knows? It's probably not going to make that much money. Not that it would have really anyway. I don't think it's going to pull enough kind of casual viewers in because it will be a little bit out there and difficult to access in some respects, I think. Especially June, it's such a huge, complicated world that how can you hope to represent that in a film? I mean, they tried before. Mm-hmm. Varying degrees of success. <laughs> Oh, I mean, definitely. I mean, even reading the books and things, it sort of twists you all over the place. So trying to transfer that to film is immensely difficult. But I'm hoping that they're getting there. I think they're breaking the first book into a couple of films at least. So that suggests to me that they're taking it steady and slow and maybe expanding on bits instead of trying to cram everything into one film and it really not making any sense at all. I think they're trying to pace it mm. a little bit so they can structure it a bit better, so we'll see what happens. Until it makes no money and, and yeah. left off with this kind of... I mean, it's <laughs> interesting. I mean, the whole box office thing at the moment, it's how will they be categorising things as a success? 
because yeah. obviously you've got to base it on oh well it didn't do particularly well in the current environment in theaters but how will it do on demand how will it do on dvd and release kind of thing physical release when it comes out so i don't know how they're looking at box office figures at the moment and going oh this is a huge success this was a great film well done i know tenant kind of had a lackluster sort of thing and everyone's sort of going well is that good numbers at the moment or is that bad numbers at the moment what are we setting the baseline at to judge all this by yeah because normally is uh, how much over its budget does it make mm. back and generally speaking if it's three times its budget it's considered a success which is mental <laughs> you know surely one dollar above its budget is yes okay it's a success in that respect but there's all this stuff about the unreported marketing budget so you never know what they spend on marketing for these films and it could be almost as much as the film is itself in some cases. So you just never know of these things. And numbers get fudged and stuff to make it look better to investors and so on. I don't know. But yeah, this would be an interesting one. What do pandemic good numbers look like? <laughs> but if it's not making its budget back, it surely still is a failure in that respect. But you would release it. So screw you. You know, in that <laughs> sense, you've decided to release this, despite the fact that people might be a little bit too afraid to go to the cinema or feel a bit wary about it. Or even if they are flocking to it, there's only so many allowed in a screen. So you can't have those numbers. Those opening weekend numbers surely mean nothing now because people will spread out. They have to. Oh, I mean, yeah, because even at capacity, the cinemas have got to spread things out, even if everyone was chapping at the door to try and get into to different films. Yeah. I was interested in what you were calling a success there. You've got to make three times your budget, by which measurement that means that our podcast is a massive success. So I'm I'm delighted. <laughs> three times nothing is still <laughs> Yeah, but it is a massive success. <laughs> by Hollywood standards. A massive success. Yeah. There's more people that listen to the episode than we're on the episode, therefore <laughs> it's a success. But yeah, June, I'm looking forward to it. The sandworm looks cool. It looks kind of epic. I wasn't sure what they would go with because obviously it was kind of like a petal-shaped thing that was in the last film, whereas yeah. this is more sort of worm-esque, isn't it? I had a real-time strategy game set in the Dune universe on the PC back in like the early 2000s. So did I! That was the same one. Yeah. And you used to have... I can't remember what it was called. But... I think it was just called Dune. <laughs> or it was Battle for Dune or something like Battle that. Battle for but Dune, yeah. you built yeah. all these units. Well, it's real-time strategy games. They don't really make them anymore, but... You basically build up your units, cross the map, and kill the enemy. And then in this one, if you cross the map, and you might get attacked by a giant worm. So. It had some of the most terrible filmed cutscenes in that game, if I remember rightly. Some very outrageous outfits right, yeah. in the cutscenes. It was very good. I just remember always having to get my units to try and scatter to get to solid ground to avoid worms. Yeah. I don't think I ever completed it, but I did have it. Probably still do somewhere. Maybe I'll look that out and see if I can get it working in a Windows 10 machine. Mm. Impossible. I'll do a Let's Play. <laughs> Put it on YouTube. <laughs> no, I won't. Don't quote me on that. I'm not doing it <laughs> in the run-up to Coming June, to Twitch sometime that. soon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not happening. I'm not doing it. <laughs> it's probably not going to run. Or if you try and stream on Twitch, it just force closes because it's just not compatible. I think my copy will be at my mum and dad's. I don't think I've got it here. I'll need to have a look. Maybe it's on Steam. I don't know. Could be. But I was playing it around the same time as Star Trek Armada and Red Alert 2 and all those. I used to like my real-time strategy games. Oh, Red Alert. I used to love playing Red Alert. We had uh, sort of a LAN version of it at school as well. <laughs> LAN oh, yeah. yeah. I used to play on dial-up online. 
with friends. That worked, by the way. I don't know how. <laughs> because the amount of lag and latency you get in like AAA games when you're playing on broadband is insane sometimes. And whereas I was getting this and there was no lag whatsoever. I suppose all the assets are on your local machine. So you're just putting in the coordinates of where things move on dial-up, aren't you? Whereas now a lot of the stuff is streaming random content from servers at the same time. Who knows? Someone should do a deep dive on a YouTube channel into how gaming worked on dial-up connections back in the day. But anyway, digress. So June, yeah, hyped for it. Trailers in the show notes. If you haven't seen it, click on it. Look at it. Marvel at its gloriousness, I guess. There's a lot of big actors in it in small roles in some cases, apparently. Like Zendaya says she's only in it for like five minutes or something like that. Yeah, her character gets bigger later if they do the next film. (laughs) If If they do the next one. If they do the next one. I know you're not particularly optimistic about the next one happening, but if they do the next one, her character has a bit more of a role. My Neil Before is going to be a bit of a chain. So I'm going to Neil Before all the Marvel announcements that we've had recently. All of the Marvel announcements. There's only three. All of the Marvel announcements. Burning them all at once. Yeah, rather than steal them all across the next two, three subsequent podcasts. But first, or most significantly probably, we have a trailer for WandaVision, which will probably appear in November, is my guess. I'm basing this on nothing, but seems a good time to release it, or at least the first episode of it, and then it will be on for like six or eight weeks, however long it is. It looks great, though. It looks crazy and weird, and looks like they're really dialing into the comic book power set that Wanda has and I think these Disney Plus shows are a good opportunity to get these characters that maybe don't get enough coverage in the big films and give them more character development. So you might see them actually being better developed than some of the ones that are in multiple films because just the sheer number of hours you're spending with them. So that's one thing, one division trailer. I have seen the trailer. It looks great. I'm with you. It looks balmy. It looks like it could be a lot of fun as well. They're putting a bit of mystery in there. They're putting a bit of fun, kookiness. I don't know how much of the sort of period setting that they're doing, you know, like the 50s, 60s setting is going to actually be a thing through or if that's just the beginnings of this. But yeah, it just looks really interesting the way it's put together and the little bit of mystery of, oh, you know why you're here kind of thing. Definitely offer it. It looks like it's loosely based on House of M, which is a comic arc where Scarlet Witch builds a universe because she doesn't like the current one for reasons. And she builds this kind of perfect mutant-centric universe so she can feel comfortable and so on. It's quite a good story, actually. Each of the different heroes feed into it in different ways. Spider-Man gets whatever he wants, Wolverine gets whatever he wants, etc. And it's it's a really good sort of big event that cascades across a lot of comics, and it's an alternate universe, and you get to see how different characters play out in that new universe. And it looks to be loosely based on the... Vision comic book that was celebrated where he had like a suburban family and so on. So, yeah, they're leaning into a bit of a Bewitch style sitcom and whatever mm-hmm. else is a visual thing. And then it looks like that reality is already shattered. Like the neighbors say, Where did you come from? Who did, when did you get married? When did you move here? And it's like, There is no backstory. It's all so flimsy. And all it needs is for that to be challenged. Mm-hmm. So maybe she doesn't know what she's done initially. But once she, recognises that she doesn't know the answers to these questions that she should know the answers to, it starts to unravel. So I'd be interested to see how that plays out. And the trailer is very nicely put together in the sense that it doesn't 
tell you anything. It keeps you gripped in terms of the, oh, there's a lot of questions here. And it should shut anyone up that says, oh, the Marvel stuff is starting to look the same. I think it's going to be different. Like you say, it fills out these characters that you wouldn't have time to fill out in a film properly. So that's going to be interesting to see. Also, I get what you're saying about November. They might push it further back towards sort of December time. I'm just trying to think of when The Mandalorian's out and how many weeks of The Mandalorian we're going to have. Eight, probably. Eight, and that starts in October. So maybe they won't have simultaneous releasing instead of blowing all their content all at once, considering that they're going to have limited releases (laughs) at the moment. Maybe. But I thought maybe after The Mandalorian finishes, then they'll follow up with WandaVision. Yeah, I never thought of that. That's a good point. Possibly. Yeah. In other Disney Plus related news, there is some casting. So they've cast She-Hulk, Jennifer Walters herself, and it's going to be Tatiana Maslany, who was in Orphan Black, a show I've never seen, but kind of want to see. Good choice. There was a lot of speculation over, are they going to hire like a seven foot bodybuilder or <laughs> at least a bodybuilding maybe not actress, but a bodybuilder to do it. You know, the Lou Ferrigno type casting back in the 70s. We'll get this giant wrestler, paint him green, and now he's the Hulk. And it may work in the 70s, but it doesn't necessarily work now. So I suspect there'll be some in digital enhancement. And the thing about She-Hulk is sometimes in the comics, she's stuck in her She-Hulk form. Sometimes she can move back and forth, but she chooses to remain green because it's a body image thing. She's comfortable with that. She's not ashamed of who she is. So she stays big and green and doesn't revert back to her human-looking self. So nothing is known about how they're going to handle that, whether it's going to be digital trickery that you'll have to watch the whole time, a bit like with the Hulk and Endgame, or whether there will be some back and forth. Maybe just every episode there'll be an excuse for her to Hulk out towards the end <laughs> just to fight some guy. Or it might start as a bit of back and forth and then moving into that acceptance stage maybe towards the end. I don't know. It, de- it depends on how far along her story they're picking this up about. They're throwing money at these shows, so I would think the expense of mm. rendering her digitally won't be an issue. And hopefully Ruffalo will be in this because her origin's tied to the Hulk in the sense that he gives her a blood transfusion because there's no one else around at the time and she'll die otherwise. And that's what kickstarts her origin. And they're cousins uh-huh. in the comics as well. So whether they'll keep that or not is, I don't know. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. I'm always up for a bit more content. Casting seems good to me. Orphan Black, again, is another show that I've had on a watch list thing for ages and just never got round to it. Yeah, there's only like 50 episodes or something like that, which sounds like a lot. <laughs> the seasons are only 10 episodes each. I'm going to prioritise it next, I think, after I finish watching Glee. Yes, I've been watching Glee, so... Whatever. This is where you break out into your favourite show tune right now. and <laughs> Break out in the song. It's not just show tunes. They always do um, pop songs. Yeah, your Lady Gaga cover or whatever you want to do, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it, yeah. But Melissa Benoist's in it, so why wouldn't I watch it, to be perfectly honest? And we have a production team for Ms. Marvel. And it's Bad Boys for Life director joining the team behind it. I've not seen Bad Boys for Life because... I don't really like the Bad Boys films, but that's cool. So the Ms. Marvel show is happening, so I'm looking forward to that already. I think it's a great character to do something with, and her real estate will be going up a bit after the Avengers game. Whether the game is any good or not is up for debate even still. I don't think it is after having played it, and that's why I cancelled my pre-order and didn't want to own it. But 
people are liking her, people are liking the story around her, and should translate very easily to a TV show. Be interesting to see how they do the Ms. Marvel connection because in the comics she idolizes Carol Danvers and that's why she picks up that moniker. So she doesn't have the same powers, but she's a she's a big fan. She's a teenage fangirl of the Avengers and particularly Captain Marvel. So that's why she becomes Ms. Marvel. I've only read stories involving her where she sort of crossed over into other things, but uh, yeah, looking forward to that as well. Yeah. That's a Marvel trifecta. It's funny how phase four of Marvel, after the big barnstorming endgame last <laughs> year, is, oh yeah, we'll do a TV show at the end of next year, <laughs> as it turns out. <laughs> it's very weird. It's odd times at the moment with the way things are going and release date pushing and things like that. I'd imagine that we're probably going to get some more delays on different filming things coming out. Black Widow hasn't been delayed as of recording hmm. time. But I think it's being looked at. There was rumours about it being looked at recently. So there's probably a good chance that's getting delayed. Because they they want their Marvel movies in cinemas making a billion dollars. And it's just not going to happen right now. Well, like you say, they can maybe take a bit of an immediate hit on a few things that they've already had produced. But I can't imagine they're keen on all their big hitters coming out and not making money. Well, the Disney Plus stuff is no difference because that was coming up mm. on that platform. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. was all heading for those particular releases, so that's fine. It's more the big films. It's the big movie releases that are really getting held up now. Your at-home market, if anything, is probably bigger than it would have been otherwise with people yeah. looking for their next thing to watch. The problem's keeping up with demand for that kind of content at the moment. <laughs> yeah. So you release that random TV <laughs> show that you've just been sitting on for ages. Oh, well, we weren't going to screen this, but may as well. We need something <laughs> to keep the subscribers. <laughs> sure, we've got this story lying around. Let's let's film this. <laughs> yeah. So we'll talk about Marvel stuff more as the situation develops. But that is it for now. So that's pretty good. More Marvel stuff and a variety of Marvel stuff and characters that I want to see and TV fixtures. And apparently the rights to the Netflix stuff, you know, the Netflix guys start to revert back pretty soon. Ah, that is quicker than I thought, because I, I thought there was about a three-year timer. So is it shorter than that, is it? It's two years from when they stopped producing it. So Iron Fist and Luke Cage will be back first, because they only had two seasons. Mm-hmm. And then Jessica Jones and the other one, Daredevil. How did I forget Daredevil? Jessica Jones and Daredevil will return later, because they had the third season, so they've got extra months I guess on it but this whole Covid situation means that it doesn't really matter. Any delay they would have had using those characters has kind of solved itself in that respect. That's true. I just didn't know what the timer was. In my head I had three years for some reason. I think it's only two. So it seems they can get Luke Cage and Iron Fist back pretty soon. So I don't know if that means we'll get a Disney Plus Heroes for Hire show. There were some good bits out of those shows. It's just the quality kind of dropped off a little bit with everything that was getting released. Well, I haven't even seen the second season of those two shows. Yeah, well, I I started the second season of Iron Fist, but I didn't watch the second season of Luke Cage. And like I say, I started Iron Fist, but it was only a couple of episodes in that I got. And I kind of gave up on it. So maybe I should have given them a bit more of a fair try. And I didn't watch Jessica Jones Season 3 because Jessica Jones Season 2 was so bad that I vowed never to watch anything to do with it ever again. (laughs) It's just chronic stuff. I don't know why I sat through it. And Daredevil Season 3 I liked. 
But yeah, they're all Netflix project. And they'll obviously have to lighten, well, not obviously, but they might have to lighten the tones bringing these people over. And I don't know if we'll see The Punisher again anytime soon because The Punisher would not be in line with Disney's wholesome Disney Plus image at the moment. I've never watched The Punisher at all. He ruined part of (laughs) of, uh, Daredevil Season 2, in my opinion, but... Oh, I think yeah. it was the best part. Of I know, I know. Other two. people really liked yeah. him, but in the meantime, I was like, "Oh my god, why are we focusing on this guy?" <laughs> so yeah, I, I never even watched Punisher um, season one, so I've got no interest in seeing that popping back up again. Daredevil, I didn't enjoy the second season, but um, I agree with you. With the first season, it was kind of getting better and back on form, so I'd love to see that coming back. Yeah, and they can lighten him up a bit as well, quite easily. You just shift the focus a little bit. Yep. Okay, let's move on. Rise Against Something. Rise Against Something. This is something that I could probably find some reasons to kneel before as well, but Microsoft have bought Bethesda Games recently and purchased that, but it's brought up basically locking games into platforms, which I am kind of a rise against for. I understand why it's done, because it's to sell consoles and whatnot. But then it sort of limits who can enjoy different things. If you don't want to buy two different consoles or three different platforms, if you're wanting to go on some of the stuff that's PC only as well, though it's very rare that something's locked for just PC. So yeah, kind of a little bit against that because I think it'll be a shame if all those games are locked to Xbox only because it's big franchises like Fallout or Elder Scrolls, Wolfenstein, things like that. Yeah, although with Microsoft it's slightly different because as long as you own a PC... You can play those games. All you have to do is subscribe to the Game Pass service. Yeah, so they're starting up the Game Pass thing, but there's talk of it being more locked in towards Xboxes and whatnot. So I suppose we won't know how it'll shake out, but I know that Bethesda have promised two games to the PlayStation that I think are still going to come out. I imagine if they're already a certain way down development, there'd be no loss yeah. in them releasing them to PlayStation. It would seem like a waste if you've spent all this time making them compatible yeah. and then dropping it. I mean, it's nothing new, because Microsoft owned Bungie when they made Halo. That split off on its own eventually. Not Halo, Halo remained exclusive, but the company did. And that's, I think, where you got, was it Titanfall they made? Mm. Or was it maybe that bloody Iron Man game? Not that, It wasn't Iron Man, but it was like the, the mech suit, flying mech suit game. I can't remember what it was called. Anthem, was that them? I don't know. It was, it was one of the two. I'm not huge on gaming companies and what they make, but Sony, they own Insomniac, they made Spider-Man. And Spider-Man will only ever be out on a Sony console. So, yeah, if you own an Xbox and want to play it, tough. Basically, that's how it is. The Uncharted games, uh, the Last of Us games, will only be out on Sony consoles because Sony owns Naughty Dog as well. So Microsoft doing this isn't unusual. Oh, it's not unusual. I just don't like it. (laughs) Yeah. The amount they paid for it is insane as well. Seven point four billion. Oh yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot of money. A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of money. <laughs> Disney bought all of Star Wars for just over four billion. <laughs> Put that in perspective. All of Star Wars went to Disney for three billion dollars less than Microsoft paid for this one video game publisher. But then probably you're getting all the rights, story rights, and things that tie off of that as well. So. In a world where Netflix are making series out of video game franchises, you can see where the potential is, where you can spin some of that off. So that's yeah. where some of that potential value might be coming from. 
So I guess we'll see how Game Pass shakes out because it seems that Microsoft's model for the next generation of consoles is even though they've got their console, they've got their like bare bones one, as in it'll mm. play the game, but you won't get kind of 4K graphics or whatever else. It'll play the game fine. And if you're happy just putting up with it in crappy HD, you know, in 1080p, then you can buy this cheaper console. And then they've got their big beast console, which is the most powerful one that they make. But this Game Pass thing... I'd be surprised if it didn't spin out to PCs for big titles. Maybe you'll be delayed in getting them on that surface, but you'll get them. And people talk about even playing with them on their phones, which is crazy. I know, it is kind of becoming a bit like what the filmmakers hate, which is they sit there and make these amazing graphics, these huge vistas, these amazing cinematography shots, and then someone will sit there and watch on their phone while they're bouncing about on the bus. Four-inch screen and some little tinny headphones watching yeah. <laughs> this masterpiece that they've created. And I imagine there'll be some people at these games companies going, no, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what have you done to my amazing vistas? Yeah, it's an interesting angle for them to play. I wonder how long it'll be before they homebrew the, the software on a PS5 so that you can play Xbox games on the PS5, because that usually happens eventually. Because mm. the hardware will manage it, but it's just the software won't let it happen, obviously. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a bad thing if you want to play like Elder Scrolls on your PlayStation. I, I don't really like those games, so I don't really play Fallout or anything like that. So I'm not fussed. I've pitched my tent in Sony's land, so I'm happy with what they're offering me and i got a ps5 pre-ordered which is oh, very nice but there won't be any issues with pre-ordering the ps5 it was just this day one scramble of pre-orders because they made an absolute tit of uh, announcing the pre-orders as in by not announcing them and then them just turning up on websites and people pre-ordering and or trying to pre-order and not getting them there'll be an influx of pre-orders that appear soon and then everybody that wants one at launch will get one that I am guaranteeing, even though I don't work in this industry at all or know anything. But I think it's going to be... You hear that, listeners? If you don't get your PS5 pre-order, uh, you can contact Craig and he'll give you his. You can contact me and then I'll be like, well, I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm not always right. <laughs> You'll get an, an apology through the post, handwritten. <laughs> You'll get an... No, you won't get an apology. You get told. Oh, <laughs> take it it's slowly take getting out with the people selling. The it. Craig McKenzie guarantee is slowly dropping in, in value. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I don't think it'll be an issue. It never has been really, unless you're an, want to buy a Nintendo console, then there's an issue. But you know, I got a Switch, no problem as well. So there we go. So <laughs> yeah. so suck on that. Need, need to get, get you one. to do my pre-order. <laughs> yeah, well, you just wait. Yeah. Hey, I've booked enough midnight screenings to know what it takes to get these things before other people do. That's very true. Uh, remember midnight screenings? Oh, remember that? Yeah. Remember that fun time? Yeah. yeah. So anyway, My Rise Against is sort of connected to yours in a way, as in it's kind of video game-ish related. We've got some set photos from the Uncharted movie Ooh. based on the video game of the same name. Tom Holland is playing Nathan Drake, despite the fact he's way too young, although he's playing like a younger Nathan Drake. And Mark Wahlberg is playing a character called Sully. And I don't know how familiar you are with the Uncharted games, but Sully is an older gentleman with a very distinctive moustache and a very distinctive voice that matches that moustache. And Mark Wahlberg on set looks like Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> so I'm very disappointed already. <laughs> Why would you cast Mark Wahlberg in this role? I really don't understand. 
star power. Really? But yeah, you've got to think there would be someone else that you could uh, plumb in. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I have not played the Uncharted games, but I know a lot of people love them and want to see them. So yeah, I'm up for this. But yeah, casting... <laughs> casting can sometimes be a bit interesting with these things. Just watch a let's play of the game or the games on YouTube and you'll get everything you would want from the film. That's <laughs> what I recommend. And mo- no Mark Wahlberg in sight. No Mark Wahlberg. I mean, it's difficult sometimes because they'll take a popular game and go, oh, we're going to transfer this to film. You're like, but how? It doesn't really transfer that well because some games have a fantastic story but it's the way that you play through them and the way that things are revealed to you that makes it a great story because it is written for that format there's some great storytelling elements out there especially where it's sort of more platform and level based games get transferred over a lot of the times it's like the story doesn't work because they just need to try and put them into situations (laughs) where they've got to solve a puzzle And do a thing, and you're like, oh, it's, it's, yeah, okay. So in the game, this would be something that you get through, but it then starts to make really boring storytelling. For example, the Lara Croft films, I've never been particularly big on. They're a bit disposable. You can watch them for a bit of a laugh, but they're not great films. No, and they're never supposed to be. I think all three of them, and I say all three, I don't really remember the second mm. one that well. Definitely the first one. The first one's all right, it's watchable. And the. Alicia Vikander one, it's pretty good. She's pretty good in it, and eh, the story's a bit lacklustre. But again, it's watchable. Detective Pikachu is based on a video game, but not really, in the sense that they didn't really adapt <laughs> the video game. But if it's an adaptation of Pokemon for the big screen, then it's the best video game movie ever made. It's very good. The Resident Evil films are bonkers and rubbish, but I kind of like <laughs> <laughs> And then the rest are all crap. People like the first Mortal Kombat? I don't. But the rest are all rubbish. Street Fighter's kind of funny because Van Damme's in it and he's just rubbish at it, but it's kind of funny. But Uncharted, based on this, I'm not that excited. And the set pieces in the games are amazing and you play through them. And I don't know how they'll top that in a film and I don't really see the point in it. Just make another game. Make a Uncharted prequel with a Tom Holland-esque character model. Get him to voice it. Why not? There you go. That's your thing. So... That's it. Neil Before Rise Against is over. An extended one because we just got off on a tangent. But there we go. <laughs> yeah, we, we covered a multiple Neil Befores and Rises <laughs> Against, but we yeah. got there. So shall we move to our featured topic, which is Star Trek Discovery Season 2. The first part of it, anyway. First half of it-ish. Let's do the first part-ish. So this podcast is kind of unique in the sense that it's long delayed. We should have done it at the end of season two, but didn't for some reason. And it's notable because you are positive that we've already done it. I'm convinced that we've already (laughs) recorded and had this podcast at some point. But I think I may be combining multiple conversations we've had about the show and making a podcast in my head. We do sometimes talk outside the podcast and sometimes talk about things we talk about (laughs) on the podcast. Well, not on the podcast. It's a novel strategy. It happens. Some have said there are more interesting conversations on those calls than happen (laughs) during the podcast, but those people would be wrong. But yeah, we had a conversation. We're talking about Discovery coming back. And then suddenly, uh, yeah, we're now recording our Discovery Season 2 podcast. Yeah. So we're only going to do the first half. We're doing up to episode six, the end of episode six, because I feel like that's a good halfway point. That is the point where 
Spock is found, perhaps, alive and well. Spoilers. Maybe not spoilers. But <laughs> without spoiling, what do you think of the first half of season two? I thought the first half was good. It puts a bit of mystery in there and it sort of took Discovery off on a few sort of little tangents. As much as they were sort of following the Red Angel around, it was little individual plot stories as they went around. So I kind of liked that. Yeah, I like the first half of season two as well. I think there's some issues with it, which we'll get to. But broadly speaking, it's a good show. And... Is it an improvement over season one? We'll get to that too, but good. It's good Star Trek. It's good television. And yeah, great to talk about it. Great to see it and all that good stuff. So on that, should we go to Black Alert and jump into the spoiler section? Oh yes, Black Alert, please. Yeah, gotta love Black Alert. Black Alert. Black Alert. Black Alert. So we'll start with the central plot of season two, which was the Red Angel mystery. That was the thread that wove it all together. Starts off with some signals being detected, mysterious signals across the galaxy. And Captain Pike, played by Anson Mount, comes aboard the Discovery to take command and go look at one of the signals. The Red Angel thing, I quite liked it as a bit of a through line. It's this mysterious entity that does things. And they did this thing where... Yeah, this kind of mix of episodic and serialised content. So it was episodic in the sense that they would go somewhere and have to do something, but serialised in the sense that that action was premeditated as in they were being led there by essentially the Red Angel. So they go to the asteroid to save Jet Reno, and then they have to go to that displaced human colony to stop it from being annihilated. And then they're in the path of the sphere, and so on and so on. And it's just this constant signposting of you have to go here and then once they get there they have to figure it out by themselves which is good rather than being told what to do but once they get there their Starfleet instincts kick in and they already know what they need to do because hey we're Starfleet there's someone in danger we have a really advanced starship let's put it to use and I like (laughs) that as a kind of structure of the season in terms of just getting them on these adventures no definitely like I said at the the beginning there I I sort of liked that there was the through line of the Red Angel, but you were getting these little contained stories and things for the characters to do. And it wasn't like this This entire thing is being driven by this one plot. You got your little elements scattered throughout there. The introduction of Captain Pike. Love Captain Pike. Think he's absolutely great in this. And the way he bounces off the rest of the crew following what we had with Lorca in the previous season. Captain Pike wafts on like a breath of fresh air kind of thing (laughs) into the crew. So it's that more traditional Star Trek dynamic that you get. It's someone that hasn't been, I was going to say sort of tainted by the war. It's probably the wrong way of phrasing it, but he's not as down as the rest of them are after a drawn out conflict that sort of twists your moral values in that particular way. He's still that pure Starfleet as he comes back after the five-year mission. And I think with Pike, I mean, Pike was a great addition to the show, and we'll definitely discuss him in detail. But I think there was a bit of backpedalling on a lot of the changes they were making in season one. So season one was this confident production in the sense of, we're going to change up how the Klingons look. Look at how advanced the ship looks. Everybody talks using holograms. 
So a holographic avatar of them appears in front of them and it's almost like they're in the same room except one is transparent and holographic. That's just fine. As we said repeatedly Mm. on other podcasts, you have this situation where you've got a TV show produced in 2017, 2018 that is a prequel to a show that was produced in the 60s. So the 60s imagined the future in a certain way, as in two-way video communication would have just been science fiction at that point because it was. It didn't exist. You couldn't do it. It was impossible on that technology. Whereas now we're looking at a situation where we will probably have holographic communicators within 20 years. You'll be able to conjure up a holographic avatar of someone in your front room pretty soon, I would imagine. And I think the technology already exists. It's just, it's not commercially available or it's not fully developed yet. But I think it already exists in some way or another. You can create a three-dimensional image of someone in front of you. And in theory, that image can talk to you. So I've never had a problem with the enhancements in the production because it makes sense. It would be ridiculous if it looked like it did in the 1960s. So I think my view is you're, I mean, it's not going to work for everybody, but your perception of Star Trek has to shift with the times, or at least I am happy to accept the fact that it's just going to look different because of when it's made rather than when it's set. So it's an extrapolation of the future at the end of the day, and that's fine by me. I mean, it doesn't ruin the stories being told in any of the series that we've already had, at least not to a certain extent. On Kirk's Enterprise, you couldn't beam within the ship, and they could do that in Discovery, and they do it all the time. So that's kind of something, but I guess they never conceived of that at the time. And It's a grey area. But this holographic communicator thing, there's specific lines in the show where Pike's talking to someone, it's like, oh, Chris, we're the only ones that use screens anymore, it feels like. And then the Enterprise has holographic communication technology built in and Pike's like, rip it all out, get rid of it. I don't like it anyway. (laughs) That's fine for Pike. But is Kirk going to be like that? Probably not, because he'll be brought up with it and he's young. Pike's this older gentleman who's happy with the technology the way it was and doesn't like the holographic stuff. So that's him, but that's not everyone. And that transposes all the way through to Picard. (laughs) Picard doesn't like it either. Nobody in Starfleet (laughs) likes it later on. I don't accept that. So I don't really need it. Just don't draw attention to it. And then I'm not going to care. Oh, the Klingons, they're growing their hair because they're not at war anymore. eh, We've seen the Klingons at war before and they had hair. You don't see the Klingons shaving their hair off during the Dominion War. Yeah, I'm with you. They did start off with this boldness and then following criticisms from certain people, they start to roll some of it back. I don't know. Some of it is maybe a bit tongue-in-cheek and going, oh, let's just put some vague reasoning in there. But like you say, Pike removing that kit from the Enterprise wouldn't particularly last long. The next refit, the next upgrade, the next captain, like you say, would go, well, where's all this kit? (laughs) Why is this not working? Oh, it was faulty two years ago. Okay, but you didn't fix it after two years? Yeah. I think it's a bit of an excuse in there, but there's no reason why not. The fact that they've updated the production design and everything... I don't mind. I think it would put me off more if they went, oh, well, we're going to make it look like we filmed this in the 1960s. Yeah. With wobbly sets, big buttons and flashing lights all over the bridge. You'd be distracted by that more, I think, than what they've done with the modern aesthetic. Because then you'd be sitting going, well, why Why have they got it like this? <laughs> you know? I think it would please maybe a few diehard fans, but you would lose more people watching it. Yeah. Because at first it would be a novelty of, oh, look at this show going back to the way things were done back in the 60s. But imagine trying to tell these, in some ways, darker storylines that are pitched in likes of Discovery and things now, but doing it 
in this bright 1960s retro set, <laughs> I don't think it would work as well. So updating the production to work with it, updating expectations in line with current technology, you're spot on. We're not that far away from holographic technology. And at the moment, you've got to have a sort of mesh that you project it on and you can get a bit of 3D imagery on the go. But it won't be long until someone works out a way of doing that without having to have sort of mesh or screen set up for that to happen. And technology has got smaller. The processing power that's in most people's mobile phones now is just ridiculous. So, of course, in the future, these devices are going to be capable of doing many, many more things. In fact, there's an entire, I don't know if it's actually been won yet, but there's a competition to build a medical tricorder. Mm-hmm. And all these companies are competing for this award. I think they've given them a list of maybe six things that they want this tricorder device to be able to do. Medical conditions they want it to be able to diagnose without having to take direct samples from the patient. And they've already got pretty darn close. Yeah. So I don't think we're too far away from some of this technology. And yeah. to roll it back and go, oh, well, in the future they'll have Skype conferences. And you go, uh, okay, <laughs> I suppose. The show that takes it and brings it into a more realistic approach or a more nearby approach to what we've got at the moment is The Expanse, where they're using laser communication over distances and they still have this lag in communications. So they'll record a video response to a message that they've received and it'll get sent because obviously you can't have real-time communication over vast distances at this point, but that's set way before Star Trek is set. Yeah, plus they are trying to build a realistic view oh, of yeah. what space travel will be like if we were to achieve it in the not-too-distant future. So that's a different thing entirely, whereas in Star Trek mm. you can have real-time communication with someone 50 light-years away because of subspace that carries the signal instantly. And you use the line, subspace relay, and then that's what we need. <laughs> and that's why you can talk to someone who's light years yeah. away instantly. Yeah, they brought it in. The expanse is we can travel within the solar system, but we're not galaxy hopping at this point. We're not going across multiple different solar systems. We're yeah. just in our own. So Star Trek is still science fiction in that respect. Mm. I mean, not that the expanse isn't science fiction, because yes. we can't travel within the solar system in that way. <laughs> but it's properly like extrapolation science fiction as in there are certain trappings that are native to star trek that mean that you can just talk to people light years away because of the technology and things like that and that that's been around since the 60s in terms of that you know it's we need to contact starfleet command and then they're on screen a second later that kind of thing so that's fine but them walking it back they didn't walk it back too much though there wasn't that yeah we're going back to using buttons it's like get rid of these touch screens on my enterprise <laughs> we don't need those stupid touch screens <laughs> We'll talk about it more in the second part, because we're splitting this into two recordings that we're going to do one half of the season each, as I mentioned. So you don't see the Enterprise bridge in this half of the season. You do, however, see Spock's quarters, and there's design elements that are reminiscent of the original sets. The mesh metal thing that's Mm. that's great that's just standing there, the colours and things, so you get a sense of this is how the original series might look if we were making it now. And we'll talk about it more. But when you finally see the bridge, you're like, yeah, that's a modernization of the Enterprise bridge. That's a modernization of how that looks. So that's fine by me. And 
I think if you can't get over that, that's valid because you can't get over it. It doesn't make you any less of a Star Trek fan. But if it's something that you're going to say that the show is crap over, then you should really be seriously considering whether this show is for you. Oh, definitely. It is science fiction. You've got to take that element with you. You've got to allow them a certain amount of hand wavium. You've got to allow them to update production designs. They can't stick to what was there because it'd be even less realistic. That's the thing. It would be another barrier to try and cross. And they had fun with it before in terms of the retro design of the 60s stuff, as in in the Enterprise two-parter where it's set in the mirror universe and everyone's evil Mm. and they find the Defiant. And it's the 60s design. That's what it looks like. And they have fun with it because it's a fun episode. Deep Space Nine, they travel back in time to wander around during the events of the Trouble with Tribbles. Again, they have fun with it. But here they're not looking to have fun with it. Well, to some extent, anyway. It's not an episode or a bit of an episode. It's an entire series. It just wouldn't stand for that amount of time. So that's fine, as far as I'm concerned. But that was a weird tangent. But I thought it was good to get it out of the way, as in, we're fine with the production Hmm. design. Move on. So the Red Angel... It was pretty clear early on that it was connected to Burnham in some way. And this is something that can let the show down. If you happen to not like Michael Burnham, there's no way you can like this show because it revolves around her. And I think (laughs) overly so in some cases. So the fact is the Red Angel, you don't find out who it is in this half of the season. But it's very clear in this half of the season that it's at least connected to Discovery in some way in the way that's pointing them. And it's definitely connected to Burnham because it speaks to Spock in the sense that he knows about the signals before they appear and it drives him insane and you have to find out what's going on there. So, again, the universe is revolving around Michael Burnham and I'm kind of not sure how I feel about that because it's problematic in the sense that you have this one character that the show is completely focused on, which is a bit of an issue in, in the sense that well, there's other people here too, and there's other people that aren't getting enough screen time. And you could also be telling this story without it being intimately connected to Burnham and her history and her family. Yeah, I'm kind of with you on that because uh, Star Trek shows are normally more of an ensemble piece. Granted, it's normally more sort of an episodic thing where, oh, this will be the one where Picard learns this or Data yeah. does this or Geordi does that kind of thing. And then the rest of the cast are kind of around that. But then the next episode might be focused on another pairing of characters. Whereas because of the way Discovery works, it has followed Burnham as our protagonist throughout the whole thing. We did get splits within these episodes where they would focus on other characters. But like you say, a lot of plot points revolve around Burnham being involved in those storylines. Maybe where... She wouldn't need to be as much. We do get Saru's evolution during this arc. For example, you get the episode where you go over to mm-hmm. Tyler and you see what's going on with him. They do do these sort of cutaway storylines. Tilly, when she was seeing her, her school friend, whose name I can't May. remember off the top of my head. me. there you go. So you do get these little storylines that cut away and don't focus on Burnham, but it always sort of revolves back to that because of the core story that they're yeah. following. And sometimes that can be to its detriment. Yeah, Saru's dying. What does this mean for Burnham? Tilly's been captured by this weird, disgusting cocoon. What does this mean for Burnham? Exactly. And then you sort of place her into parts that you go, well, 
is this really her particular place? For example, Saru's sort of death scene, they sort of go, oh, well, she'll be with him on his deathbed. Can you go in? I'm sure I only remember a few episodes back into the previous season where the two are at loggerheads the entire time. (laughs) And then it's like, no, you, you must be by my side during this moment. I don't know. Maybe that is some of this writing back of what they've done in previous seasons. Like, oh, actually, we've got to make her more likable and we've got to bring her on board with more of the characters because if we make this character an island, <laughs> it's not going to work. So they need to pull more people in. Yeah, and it looks like they were trying to enhance the senior staff a bit more, or the bridge crew, not necessarily the senior mm. staff, but what's her name? Detmar and Reese and all them. And Arium who gets an episode later in the season that we'll get to in the next recording because it's not in this half of the season. But there's all these people around that could be more heavily featured and they're not. You even have that great scene where Pike says to them as they're about to drop out of warp, right, everyone, roll call. What's your names? Because we're about to fly into danger. I'd like to know everyone's (laughs) names. And then they don't really say much more than, I, sir, after that. I like that they sort of address the point that this bridge crew has been here since the first season. And we don't know who they are. Yeah, It's for the viewer more than it is for Pike. (laughs) Because he would just go, Ops, Tactical, Helm, do this. He doesn't need to see their name. But for us, it's those characters were on that bridge through the whole first season. And we're so used to a Star Trek program being based around the bridge crew. Who's there all the time? Okay, those are your core characters on the show. Whereas this show sort of flipped it that way so and i suppose it did lead on to those characters be involved in more storylines down the way but not to the full extent that you're used to no you don't find out what detmer thinks of anything she just sits at the helm and does mm. stuff you get little bits and pieces where i've been flying since i was 10 years old or whatever as she says and and things like that yeah so you have burnham and then those in her orbit they're your main characters and then everyone else kind of appears and disappears as they need to. At least it's not like an Enterprise where you've got, for example, Travis Mayweather, who is sold as a main character but gets nothing to do for pretty much the entire four seasons. Or Hoshi, a character I would have liked to see a lot more of because I thought she was really interesting. Mm. You did see a bit of her, but she doesn't do anything other than essentially answer the phone and occasionally translate (laughs) (laughs) How can I take your call? Yeah, She would get like one episode a season or she'd be connected to someone else's plot line, but she wouldn't really be featured heavily. And this is someone that's supposed to be one of your seven main cast or whatever it is. And she's in the main credits of the show that plays over that awful theme Mm. song. (laughs) At least they're not doing that here. I mean, they are credited on the the opening credits, but it's pretty clear who the main players are. Yes. Almost immediately. The other shows quite often would make up for those. They would suddenly realise partway through a season, they would go, oh, we've not done anything with Hoshi. All right, we'll have a, a Hoshi episode. And then they would completely forget again for the, the, the sequential episodes after that. I suppose that there's changing dynamic in the way the show works. And sometimes it works really well because you can do these little storylines, but you don't need to try and pull in every single character all the time. And I think that kind of works in a way. As much as we're saying it's different for the format of the other shows, sometimes that works. Yeah. Because not every person on the bridge crew is going to be that interesting. Not everyone is going to be particularly interesting in that storyline and trying to crowbar characters into different episodes and fitting them in can make really clunky scripts. It's also creating characters that are defined by their jobs as well. Okay. We have the tactical officer. We have the helmsman. Mm. 
we have the operations guy. We've got the science officer. No, instead we have Burnham, who, well, in season one, she isn't anything. She's, you know, mm-hmm. she doesn't have a, or she becomes a specialist, which is, she can do whatever the story needs her to this week. And she essentially mm-hmm. is that in season two again. Utility belt. <laughs> You've got Tyler, he's tactical. You've got Stamets, he's an engineer, but he's not the chief engineer. Or if he is, it's not really said. He just inhabits a compartment and pilots the spore drive and so on. So the characters are less defined by what they do and more defined by who they are, which is fresh and different in that respect. Definitely. So I think that's a good time to actually come on to Pike. We talk about his kind of personableness as a leader. And from minute one, I was hooked on this guy. I thought he was really good. I think Anson Mount brings him to life so much. We've had a couple of interpretations of Pike, Jeffrey Hunter once, Bruce Greenwood twice. But this version is the embodiment of Starfleet values, which is necessary because he runs in opposition to Leland, who is the embodiment of the opposite of Starfleet values, but still operating within that kind of sphere. So you have Pike versus Section 31, essentially, as a theme. What Starfleet's supposed to stand for and what it's kind of doing in the background so that people like Pike can still stand for those things. It's almost the reality of paradise. We have to have those kind of dirty jobs done by people willing to do those dirty jobs so that people like Pike don't have to get their hands dirty. And it's weird, the price of utopia, I guess. They don't fully go into it as such, but that is definitely at play there. And that's what defines that conflict. And it works really well in the sense that, so you've got Leland who will say something, but yeah, well, we're destabilizing the Klingon leadership structure because it suits us at the moment. Pike's like, what are you on about? We have to talk to them and let them do their own thing. It's like, come on, Pike. Really? <laughs> Do you really believe that? And he's like, he really does, because it does work for him. But Leland gets involved in these missions that won't work with a guy like Pike spearheading them. It kind of makes sense that there'd be these idealists who would just prefer to be unaware of what's going on in the background to make their dreams reality kind of thing. Yeah, like Captain America. Mm. Well, he's aware of it and doesn't like it and doesn't want it to exist, but... It still kind of does, because what can you really do about it? Yeah, you know it needs to, to an extent, to allow you to have what you have, but you don't want to know about it. Yeah. yeah. But it's just the way he took charge of the show, he took charge of the crew. He was immediately kind of forthcoming, immediately a fair leader. People responded well to him because he's just a, such a nice guy. That bit where his service record comes up and he's like, oh, look, there's a failure in astrophysics. See, I'm not perfect. I'm just like you guys. I'm not perfect. <laughs> I was briefed on what Lorca did, but apparently not fully because I don't know that the mirror universe exists until later on. So I was kind of briefed that your previous captain was a bit of a scumbag, but I don't know why. So that's not me. Don't worry, guys. And <laughs> I've kind of had that experience where I've had a terrible manager who breaks your confidence in the organization's ability to do anything. And then they get replaced by someone who's not terrible. And they do have to earn your trust because you're not ready to accept that they're any different because you've put up with nonsense for so long. So the fact that Pike makes a point of, I'm going to earn your trust. You have to do what I tell you, but I'm going to make you want to do what I tell you. It's true. Like I said earlier on, it's sort of a breath of fresh air seeing that, and you can see the crew sort of breaking down and relaxing a little bit more with them. And it's a change because you're so used to, again, the trope on Trek is that, the caretaker captain will pop on board and immediately destroy everything that's going on. <laughs> yeah. 
will rub everyone up the wrong way, start making massive sweeping changes on the ship that everyone disagrees with. So it was nice for a change to get there. I'm only here temporarily. We're kind of co-captains in a way, but I'm the big boss. Right, we're going to go off and do this thing. Yeah, that co-captain thing doesn't really happen. Yes. When he says it's going to be a shared custody arrangement, it never is. <laughs> Pike is in charge and Saru's in charge when he's not there, just as anything else would happen. Yeah, you are essentially my first officer yeah. at the moment. Thank you. Yeah, but that's the chain of command. Yeah. Like People do have yeah. to accept it. But he understands that they don't have to like it. And he understands that if he's a good leader, he has to make it worth their while to listen to him, as opposed to just oh, listen to this guy barking orders, whatever. <laughs> He's a captain, but he's useless. He recognises the fact that he has to prove himself to that crew as well. Because a leadership role does work both ways. You can't just expect people to just listen to you and respect what you're saying. You have to prove to them that you're telling them to do the right things or that you're recognising their talents are suited to certain jobs and things like that. And terrible managers don't do that. Terrible managers just think it's their way or the highway. Where Pike isn't like that. And he makes it clear early on There's that bit where Burnham says, that won't work. And he just hits back with, I don't mind dissenting opinions. I really don't, but they have to come with solutions, which I think is Mm -hmm. a weird observation to make because, well, no, a problem doesn't always come with a solution immediately. He just has to know that doing this won't work and it would be a waste of their time to do so. Of course, Burnham has the solution because she always does. (laughs) Because she has utility belt, Burnham. Yeah, but it could have been, well, I don't know yet, but I'm trying to figure it out. You just have to give me five minutes, that kind of thing. Mm. But someone asked me early on, when there'd only been a couple of episodes, and it's kind of stuck with me. And it actually was a question I couldn't easily answer at that point. But it was, why does it need to be Captain Pike? Because we all know his future. Well, maybe we don't all know his future. But anybody that's seen the original series kind of knows how he ends up. You might know it by osmosis or whatever. The, the chair. The, the chair with the two the, mm. the beeps. Yeah. <laughs> One beep for yes, two for no. <laughs> that's it. And that's the only way he can communicate, despite the fact Stephen Hawking had a better chair than that. But 60s. So, so you know Pike's fate. You know how he ends up. Yet you've got this new captain and he's... An absolute revelation. Everybody loves him. So much so that we were all barking for him to get his own TV show, which he now has, thank God. It doesn't exist yet, but it's happening. And they did a whole panel on it at a Star Trek fan event. So it's happening. They're making this show, thank God. So we already know his future. And what if it had just been some, like, Captain Spike? You know, it's just some different guy. <laughs> but, <laughs> Captain Spike, yeah. yes, please. <laughs> but played by Anson Mount and with the same personality. How would it have changed the show? And the first few episodes, I would have agreed with you. It doesn't have to be Pike. It does in the sense that Spock's on the Enterprise at the time and they both need to know Spock and all that kind of stuff. But you wouldn't have been too difficult to retool that to make him just a new guy. But then they do something later in the season that proves that they really took advantage of bringing this character in. And we'll talk about that in the next one because it's quite pivotal towards the end of the season. But it's an interesting thought about why are we bringing in this pre-existing character other than the name recognition and I didn't really have faith in them bringing him in for any other reason than that up until the point we've seen there's nothing about him in this run of episodes where he needed to be Captain Pike yeah I kind of agree to you and in the run up to this point he doesn't necessarily need to be Pike I think it was name recognition it was a couple of things 
it was they wanted to involve the enterprise in some capacity. Yeah. They previously had the, oh, we've had a distress call, it's the enterprise. And it's like, oh, okay. So if they're doing the enterprise and need a captain of the enterprise, are they going to go down the line of trying to cast another captain or do they go, all right, let's go with someone that we already know captained the enterprise in the past. He's already on the list of enterprise captains. Yeah. And the timeline as well matches up to... They could go, we're just going to go straight in with Kirk. But then immediately people would go, well, Kirk should be the focus. Also, too early for Kirk. Too early for Kirk. I suppose, yeah, too early for Kirk. But also, it gets you a bit of established canon, so it fills in a little bit before which Trek is good at doing. So, yeah, I can see why it was there. And I'm so glad, like you, I'm so glad that they're actually doing a series with them now. Because I grew to really, really like the Enterprise crew in this season. So you want to see more of them. You don't want them wasted on just one season yeah. of Discovery and then it's all gone and you're like, Hashtag oh, we oh built that's the a bit of a shame. Yeah, we built the sets. Whereas the Section 31 stuff, I wasn't as keen on. I know, again, that doesn't really properly pick up until later in the season, but the the initial stuff and everything here, I just I didn't warm yeah. to it much at all in the characters. As much as I'm all here for a bit of uh, Giorgio and seeing her going about the whole 31 thing, I just wasn't sure where it would fit in. They might have surprised me with something really interesting. And maybe that is the kind of show that would be better with a large sort of overarching plot or a, a short season with a big arc in it would potentially work for that a lot better than trying to make a sort of very episodic thing out of it. So They are reasonably heavily featured in this part of the season, but the plot doesn't really kick into high gear until the next discussion we're going to have, which we'll get to, I promise. I know we keep saying we'll get to it. It's like one of those films that's just a teaser for films that are going to get made later. <laughs> it's the amazing Spider-Man 2 of podcasts. <laughs> we're going to make these later, we promise. Mm-hmm. This may not be very interesting, but it will be interesting later, we promise. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think there's a lot to cover here as well, but... The thing about Pike is I think it ended up having the knock-on effect of, oh, but we know how he ends up. That's a shame. Well, I like this guy. Can we not just have him on the ship? And can we not just have this be the captain? Because the end of season one was, we're off to Vulcan to pick up your new captain. And as far as we know, he's still there waiting. (laughs) Or she, whoever this new captain is. Where the (laughs) hell is my ship? (laughs) Just... (laughs) keeps wandering into reception of where they are it's like hi has a discovery called yet it's like nope nothing yet it's like it's been six months where are they (laughs) (laughs) they wouldn't return my calls either so they could have just picked up this captain on you know this captain spike on vulcan he's played by anson mount he acts the exact same way and everybody loves him but that's not what they did and we'll go into more as to why that was or what they did with that character later on but it's just an interesting thought behind it, I guess. But he's also kind of a blank slate as well because he's only been in one episode, really. This version of him as well. He was only in The Cage, which is set before this. I'm not counting the Bruce Greenwood version because he's a completely different universe. So it's a completely different guy, really. He's a blank slate in the sense that you can put whatever you want onto him. And in The Cage, he's almost given up. He's ready to leave Starfleet and he's lost the passion for it, whereas... By this point, he's regained it and he's bright-eyed and ready to explore and ready to discover stuff and ready to meet any threat or meet any challenge that comes his way. And it's that swashbuckling adventurer that he isn't in the cage, but it's mm-hmm. some time since then. So really interesting character, really well deployed, I think. 
Oh, definitely. Really interesting. I think Anson Mount is a fantastic piece of casting. Really, really good. We saw him at the convention in Birmingham and he spoke with such passion about Star yeah. Trek and, and being in the show that you just really, really wanted them to get something commissioned yeah. with him in. It seemed like such a waste if nothing was announced. Like you say, they built the sets, but also yeah. great casting. <laughs> so you're sitting there going, do something yeah. with them. Don't let them go. It doesn't need yeah. to be much. Do eight episodes or something. We don't care. Just make sure you don't let them sort of drift away yeah, to do come something on CBS, else. You don't want Marvel to snap them up for season two of Inhumans because that could happen any day now. <laughs> <laughs> do you know when you were saying that Disney Plus are scratching about for content? I was like, yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Everyone wants to see Anson Mount's Black Bolt back. You know, that's, <laughs> that's high on everyone's list. We want to see him go shopping for clothes. We want to see him do prison breaks. We want yeah. to see him do all these things. We never things. did the episode where Black Bolt gets a cold. <laughs> That's the episode we needed to see. What happens when Black Bolt needs to sneeze? He has to go to a really secluded area and just let rip. <laughs> That's it. But yeah, great character. And I like that they didn't shy away from the fact that he at least is spiritual. Because whenever religion's brought up, because he talks about how he was brought up in a very religious household and how it caused a lot of friction in his family. But in the second episode where they go to Terralysium, the distress calls emanating from that structure. It's called a church. And it's, it's just an obvious statement. <laughs> and when they get into the church, he says, oh, the stained glass windows, they were to bring the gospel to those who couldn't read, that kind of knowledge that he has. And there is a spiritual aspect to him. It's pretty clear he sees the universe as being more than a collection of maths and data and things like that. He sees a, maybe not an intelligent design to it, but he has that kind of viewpoint a little bit. Yeah, definitely. He has that bit of insight and he has that respect for the other characters that we've already said. He respects the opinions and allows everyone their fair chance yeah, to say stuff. Definitely. And he's very fair to the crew. He's very approachable. He talks about, we need to get some chairs in this ready room. Lorca didn't have chairs, but I'm going to have chairs. <laughs> I want people to pull up a chair and tell me how they're feeling and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, great captain. One of the greats. He numbers among the others. Easily slots in there. I think he's great. But I didn't dislike Lorca either. I was actually disappointed he turned out to be, as we said before, a mirror universe guy because I like the idea of a war-torn captain who works in that scenario but not in others. Yeah, I was kind of the same as you in that having a captain like that, and like I say, in the past, we've seen these captains that have pop up normally. I'm taking command for this particular mission and I'm about to make a howling mess of it because I'm coming up against the traditional Starfleet values and having that captain as your core captain for a season, I was like, oh, this is a bit different. And then like you say, it's like, oh, well, actually, the real Lorca would never have acted <laughs> like that. And you're like, oh, all right, yeah. okay, cool. I suppose kind of undoes a yeah. bit of the work, but yeah, I see why they went the particular way they did for that yeah. season. But yeah, good to have Pike. And a large chunk of the season was focused on trying to find Spock because it became clear he was connected. And then there was all this stuff. He went insane and he might have murdered some doctors at this facility. So he's on the run and <laughs> he spent all this time where we've detected his shuttle. We're on its trail. Oh, look, something's interrupted us, but don't worry. We'll get him next week. And then <laughs> the next week, oh no, it's Giorgio on the shuttle now. Oh no, where's Spock? And <laughs> just every week you're kind of 
teased with this Spock appearance until you finally get it in the final episode that we're covering, the sixth episode, where he's mental and his mother's found him and he's just spouting nonsense and sitting in a cave. I like the idea that someone's got the Starfleet equivalent of a little sailboat. Meanwhile, the big destroyer... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> can't yeah. catch up with the sailboat that i found a little bit we oh we would have just got him but we ran out of gas <laughs> just as we got there because plot reasons he's got to get away but a lot of it was intensifying the anxiety that burnham feels over her relationship with him because they don't tell you what went on but clearly something went on that fractured their connection and mm. you find out and the answer isn't that great to be honest but again for later the Amazing Spider-Man 2 of podcasts, as in, yeah, we'll tell you later. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, when you find out what happened. Oh, when you hear our opinions, you'll yeah, be so excited. It's going to be amazing, trust me, when we make that, because that's definitely getting made. <laughs> we won't get cancelled and we won't get Tom Holland in instead at all. It's not going to happen. I like the idea of us now not releasing <laughs> yeah, that's part it. it just never happened. <laughs> It's just, it's a great podcast it's that destroyed never destroyed in the great hard drive fire, <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. So the anxiety thing was played up well, as in, oh, I don't want to see Spock, I don't want to speak to him. And then Sarek, who's there in the first episode, is like, I don't want to speak to him either. That's awkward. <laughs> <laughs> there was some unpleasantness some time ago that I wouldn't go into, and you might find out about later. But the way they visualised that anxiety was great. In the first episode where they beam aboard the three officers from the Enterprise, so you've got Pike, you've got Nan, and then you've got I can't Evans. Uh, yes, I think so. Connolly, got- Evan Connolly, that was it. Mm. So it was close. The science officer, the blue shirt. <laughs> but when he beams aboard, and the camera cuts to behind his ear, so when he materializes, you see the not pointed ear, and that tells you, oh, that's not Spock. Which is great. It was just a great way to visualize mm. that kind of sense of relief when you think you're going to see someone you don't want to see, and then oh, they're not here. Also, that sort of you—they're not here, and I'm not having to deal with that. And then at the same yeah. time, it's like, oh, but this was going to be my chance to speak to them and, so, and resolve this problem. Yeah. It's that mixed emotion thing that sort of played pretty well. It was well done, and it was well seeded throughout. And then Spock became part of the mystery, connected to the Red Angel, and yeah, it's weird. And and also they do a bit of a change with Spock as well. He's dyslexic, and has always been dyslexic, apparently. Yeah, it was an interesting thing to add because i remember there was bits in this jg abrams film where he's being picked on for being part human but then to add in a vulcan dyslexia element to it and it was implied it was partly to do with the fact that he's human Mm. or half human it's just an interesting trait to add and he has a disability and he overcomes that disability but it's because his brain works differently to everyone else it doesn't make him any less value but we all know how much of a genius Spock is and that's kind of why or at least contributes to his genius definitely and sort of a done thing quite often in film and tv though where you'll have dyslexia or the autistic spectrum used as an explanation for oh they're able to read the alien symbols or they're more pliable to a particular thing and that can sometimes yeah. be done a little bit too often. I don't think this was overdone, really. So, yeah, I think it was... Well, it's not been done at fine. all by the point yeah. that we're discussing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. the autistic savant is mm. an annoying trope because it is, oh, look, their brains work differently, so therefore they are essentially superhuman. Mm. And it's not like that with Spock. It's more it's just something he had to overcome. Mm. And he had to learn how to apply his way of thinking to daily life. Or at least that's what's implied. 
And it suggested that that might be why the Red Angel approached him and all this kind of stuff. But you don't get the other side of it yet. We had one episode of Spock and he didn't say anything of value because he was just <laughs> chatting gibberish. <laughs> Mumbling in a corner of a cave. Yeah. And then it kind of messes with the canon a bit, as in when Sarek appears in Journey to Babel in the original series, they talk about how he and Spock haven't seen each other in years. Which I suppose is kind of true, but it's more years than is between the episode there and then. Because they're in the same room in that episode. Mm. Although Spock isn't aware of it. This Sarek is very kind of, or this version of Sarek is a bit more emotionally open in some ways. He just said, you have to turn him in because I can't watch both of my children have their lives destroyed in a single day. I can't deal with that. How much of a distance is there between the original series and Discovery? About 10 years. So it's still, in theory, plenty of time to get more distant again from Sarek, I suppose. It doesn't break canon because they don't interact in meaningful ways. Spock isn't aware that Sarek's in the room at that point, so it still holds up. But Sarek has been changed quite a bit anyway because he is quite chatty with Burnham about, maybe not his emotions, but his innermost thoughts and so on, whereas any other time you see him, he's the proud Vulcan ambassador. Can't possibly scratch the surface of that, which is... It's just a take on the character, and his relationship with Burnham is clearly unique as well. Mm. He's obviously more open to her because of her human side, sort of in a similar way that you presume he is with Amanda, where he's in that more open relationship where potentially because trying to keep Spock down that Vulcan path, he's probably more closed off with him. I like the way that was put over on screen. And then we had a bit of Stamets dealing with grief, the loss of Culber in the previous season, and then his resurrection, which is not something that anybody can really relate to because has anybody ever had a dead loved one come back from the dead? Not to my knowledge. But it starts off in the usual way, oh, I'm going to leave the ship because everything I look at reminds me of him. And then you're just like, it's not going to stick because you're still in the main cast of the season. <laughs> and it's, I'm leaving as soon as this mission's over. This mission will take all season. Okay. And then in the midst of the season arc, I will find my passion for the ship again and find a way to move on. And then I'll be part of the team again. But then Culber ends up coming back. And the way they do it is a bit weird, as in he's stuck in the mycelial network. It's this magic mushroom stuff. It's never going to be scientifically explained, not properly. It's just... That's their MacGuffin. Mm. It's their plot device. It, yeah, this mycelial network can do whatever we want. For some reason, when Tyler snapped Culber's neck, his consciousness was transferred to the network somehow. How? Somehow. Somehow. Because you kind of thought about it at the time and it sort of happened. <laughs> you created them or recreated them within the network when you were connected and when you were in there. And it's like, oh, really? Okay. Yeah. And I wonder at what point they decided that they were bringing Colbert back. I think it was always the plan. It just doesn't feel like it. I suppose how many different ways could you do it? This was their MacGuffin way of doing it. The fact that they had him in that episode in the past season where he was sort of leading him to get him back out sort of thing. I suppose that explains it a little bit, that they did have that there already in the bank, but I would be interested to know at what point they were like, oh, oh yeah, we're definitely bringing him back in. It's a very weird way of putting it together, but you got an interesting yeah. insight into Tilly out of it as well. It sort of tied yeah. multiple things together. So it worked to a point of view, but the sciencey mcguffin bit of it leaves you going, oh, really, really, really? This is the way this happens. 
Though, how often is it transporter accident clones and whatever else that you get yeah. in Star Trek? We've seen our fair share of excuses for people popping back up, be it time travel or anything else. I suppose it's better this than the Mirror Universe version. Yeah. Although what was interesting about the way they did it was they leaned into the fact that he was reborn in every sense of the mm. word. So he has that discussion with Cornwell where it's, you know, I don't feel right. And he talks about how there's no scar. There was a scar he had and it's gone and things like that. It's a new body and he remembers the emotions, but they don't feel like part of him because it was this old body that experienced those emotions. So they don't feel like they fit mm. into his current skin. And it's that the lack of comfort in his own being because he's new, he's brand new, and that's unsettling to him because he feels the same and thinks the same, but he doesn't feel the same <laughs> in that respect. There's a disconnect there that he struggles with. And that's that's really fascinating. I did like that, the scene when he's in the med bay getting analysed and Stamets is telling the story of how he got the scar. Yeah. And like you say, he's got this disconnect. And I think that disconnect is sort of amplified by the fact that it's not even him telling the story of how yeah. it happened. He just feels it's not his anymore. It's yeah. not something that happened to him. It, and it plays out in a way, and like you say, it made it a more interesting take. Mm-hmm. It did make it a more interesting take. The fact that he's like, I, I want to try something new because I'm new. I don't have any ties. This isn't me. I can go off and do what I want to do. And it starts to obviously not look so rosy between him and Stamets and... Stamets mm. is well prepared to, well, we'll just pick up where we left off. You were dead for a few months, but we're fine now. You're new. You're back. And that's cool. And he doesn't mean to be, but he's a little bit ignorant to how, how Culber is feeling at that point and what he's actually been through because he's so happy to have him back and it's a very human reaction. But there's work there that both of them need to do to find each other again. Mm. That's really interesting stuff. I'm really happy to have the character back, though. Yeah. Good having him back in. Yeah. And having Tyler back on Discovery after galloping mm. around with the Klingons, putting him <laughs> on Discovery is a bit weird. It's like you've got this guy who's kind of like he's a secret Klingon, and there's some tension there on the ship. And, and we've just resurrected the guy that he murdered, so that's going to cause a problem. <laughs> it feels like something that's done to manufacture drama rather than this is a practical decision. Unless Leland is just that much of a dick, <laughs> this is going to be fun to watch. I'm going to put him on the Discovery, <laughs> and then I'll watch the sensor logs later. It'll be fun. It's the sort of oh, you've got a relationship with this crew. Let's send you over there. And it's like yeah. no, that's the reason he shouldn't be on that ship. <laughs> It's a sort of opposite thing. It's like, oh, people will be more open with you. No, they won't. <laughs> it's like, you know, if it, they'll tell you all sorts of things. They won't keep secrets from you and lock you away. There was that bit where, it's, well, assign Tyler at the Discovery and Pike's like, does it have to be? It's like, would you prefer Captain Giorgio? No, not at all. No, Tyler, Tyler will be fine. No, thanks. <laughs> Giorgio, who gets made by him, essentially initially it's like i used to know you and you're not at all like you used to be you're like a completely different person why (laughs) (laughs) and then burnham's like it's a longer conversation and it's classified so i can't really tell you but i'll tell you anyway at some point just not right now we're busy (laughs) it's not yet we're holding that for a dramatic moment later (laughs) yeah (laughs) but tyler being there was interesting i like pike's hostility towards him i thought that was really good because it'd be too dangerous to have pike almost as this he's the perfect captain He's very personable, he's reasonable, his orders make sense, everyone loves him. And it's this law he has where he's unable to 
properly accept Tyler initially. And it's that bit where Tyler says something. He's like, you will speak when only when spoken to. Liaison protocol is you stay on the bridge. I'm going to wait to do this. And then it's, where's Burnham? She took leave. Why didn't you tell me? Because it's nothing to do with you. It's personal. (laughs) It's personal matter. What's his line? It's like chair... Chair out, Chair out ranks the badge. Or whatever. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah. you know, <laughs> nice try, but you know your place. Yeah. It's like, don't you dare. <laughs> and his reaction to when Tyler just had the TNG style badge communicator. And he's like, what sort of communicator is that? And it's like, you're impressed by that? They could probably put a communicator <laughs> in a badge. In fact, they've just done it, but they could do it. The technology exists. You don't need to be using the flip phone that you keep using. They could have a comm badge, surely. That technology is, well, again, we have it now. Oh, right, it's a bulky Star Trek Bluetooth prop thing. You have it now, and it pairs with your phone. But you could probably have a radio transmitter in a badge that you tap and it talks to the other person. Yeah, you could do. I like the fact that we were talking earlier on about how he hates holographic technology and everything, but he's quite keen on having a little badge that he could talk into instead. I think it was more about, I've never seen this before, what's going on? And it's all this technology that Section 31 have Mm. access to that he doesn't. And he doesn't mm. even know exists. And it's almost like the military have better gear than is available commercially. It's almost like that, except not quite, because Starfleet is, well, it's not a military, but it is a military. It's the closest thing the Federation has to one. But then Section 31 yeah. is like black ops and they've got all the cool stuff. Well, you'd imagine they'd be able to get early prototype versions of different bits and pieces to help yeah. them out that maybe wouldn't be sanctioned like holographic camouflage. Oh my God. This asteroid that's been nearby us this whole time turns out it was a ship. <laughs> it wasn't very well hidden. It was the only asteroid nearby. It was immediately suspicious. Why is this here? But like Doctor Who, good news, you can disguise yourself as a British telephone box. <laughs> Bad news, you're in Miami. Yeah. <laughs> Bad news, it's the Roman times. So yeah, there are a lot of yeah, police boxes. <laughs> The Roman times is an alien planet. It's America in yeah. your disguise as a British telephone box. <laughs> the Section 31 stuff, I quite liked it. A lot of people were, and I understand why, were confused by how well known they were. They were a known commodity. Everybody knew about Section 31. They just didn't really know much about them in that sense. As in, they're known to exist. Whereas if you get to Deep Space Nine, the characters in Deep Space Nine discover them and they're confused. And they're like, we had no idea there was such a clandestine organisation in Starfleet. And in Enterprise, they appear as well. And they're news to Archer at that point. I'm wondering if it's because of the war. You know, the war's been on, so the ships have probably been more likely to come across something that says it's come from Section 31. Maybe. Than you would have been. And then Discovery being kind of a covert project in itself at the time. Maybe the crew had more knowledge of it than you would think. I don't know. That's my kind of head explanation. Well, what I thought was going to happen is they were going to do something where the organisation itself gets disavowed. Mm. Something so horrible happens where Section 31 just have to take credit for it. Maybe something to do with the Klingon Empire. If Starfleet or the Federation are implicated by this, then we're screwed. It has to be these rogue agents acting on their own recognizance. So that's where you get... Leland or Georgiou owning up to it and then they go on the run. And then the Section 31 series is that. Essentially what Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. was from season one onwards. Yeah. <laughs> I like that pitch. <laughs> Even potentially after we talk about it in the next podcast, but it makes sense. Them being disavowed and sent away and then quietly resuscitated in the background. Yeah, so there's enough time for everyone to forget they existed. 
mm. but not enough time for them to disappear completely. So it is like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., where S.H.I.E.L.D. no longer exists, except it does, as in it's these people <laughs> who are carrying the banner, using the logo, that kind of stuff, putting yeah, it on the side of very, the car. Very well-branded secret yeah. organisation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Section 31, they only had the black badges, to be fair, so you just have to get rid of them. But that's what I thought was going to happen. It isn't what happens, spoiler for the second podcast, but there is still kind of time for it to happen, I guess. But I still liked it on a conceptual level, as in you've got Section 31 that are the opposite of what Pike believes in. Leland's very comfortable with it. And I really like Leland in those episodes. I like less what they do with him later because he loses who he is. But I really liked him in these episodes because there is that complexity. He's not just simply, oh yeah, I'm a bad guy. He is operating in that grey area and it's something that's uncomfortable to look at. But when he talks about the things that he feels like he has to do, you find it difficult to disagree with what he's up to in some ways. Mm. He's weighing the odds all the yeah. time, even when they're trying to rescue Discovery and they've got the tether on and everything. Yeah. I would rather cut you loose than lose everything that I've got at the moment. We have to keep Laurel in power because that suits us right now. So we'll sneak in with these weird drones and just gun all the Klingons <laughs> down that opposer. But they'll never know where we're here. And that's the cool clandestine nature of it. We're subtly pushing things to the benefit of the Federation. And I think the way they did that was interesting enough, at least at first. And then Giorgio being there as well, her constantly trying to one-up Leland, her trying to take charge, <laughs> her trying to discredit him. For instance, when Burnham escapes, if you escape, it looks bad for Leland, which looks great for me. <laughs> Things like that. So just the little snide comments she makes and when he threatens her and she's like, I'm not scared of you. I'm just waiting for the right moment and then I'll have your job and you'll probably be dead because I really don't care. <laughs> and I love that dynamic. It's almost a bit like the mirror universe dynamic as in I rise up in rank by assassinating my previous commander or my current commander. That's almost what she's trying to do there. It's definitely that kind of gameplay. I'm going to subtly undermine you yeah. the whole time. And you imagine how often she's been doing that in the background as well. This isn't the first time that she's been doing that kind of thing. Yeah, it's really good. And it works really well for what they do with it. I don't think they do quite enough with it over the course of the season, but they do it really well. So, yeah. Tilly? I like Tilly. I always like Tilly. And she's really good in this season. Her trying to fit into the command stuff and the whole May thing and just her neuroses getting in her own way and, and I love where she's just shouting at Saru and not doing things by protocol and Saru's like Ensign Tilly how often do we have to have the same conversation? It's her enthusiasm it's that infectious enthusiasm yeah. she has for things she's still getting her medical treatment but she's running through and trying to tell them the solution to the problem I love it I love that where it's like we need to save this and we've got this asteroid fragment it generates its own gravity, so it's perfect for pulling this radiation towards it. That's amazing. And then what we need to do is we need to jump into the rings and then you'll be doing a donut with a starship. <laughs> How cool is that? <laughs> it's the initiating donut manoeuvre. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I do like when they put in those more colloquial things in Star Trek, when it makes sense. So the initiating donut manoeuvre, it's like, well, what else am I going to call it? <laughs> Yeah. Initiating 360 degree rotation sounds less fun. Yeah, sounds more Star Trek y, but less fun. Yeah, and Telly, she gets sucked in by the network. She's the communication conduit with the life form that they call May, but isn't really May. And she just has a giant fungal infection for most of the season that never gets caught. 
or for the most of the first half of the season. I like the way they initially play with it, where she thinks she's just having a mental breakdown. Yeah, or she thinks she's just seeing someone that's actually there as well. Initially, it's seeing someone that's there. Then she realizes no one else can see her. And then it's that, oh my God, I'm broken. <laughs> especially when she quits the program she has that moment where she's in the chair she's doing her first time in command getting all comfy and everything she's about to do a great job presumably in the chair and then suddenly it just all goes wrong because may's there shouting at her <laughs> it's like this is the wrong captain <laughs> yeah that was good and as always i like the friendship she has with stamets it's turbulent as well because sometimes she'll push a little bit too far and stamets says shut up you don't get to talk mm. about this. We're not talking about this. And he'll like storm out. And I like that volatility because it feels real. But I also like the little tender moment when he was about to drill into her skull and mm-hmm. sing your favourite song. And then David Bowie still remembered in the 23rd century. So it's not just classical music that makes it to the future. <laughs> <laughs> still not attending Data's violin recital, thank God. We get to listen to some other music. Do we really want to see Data's David Bowie tribute night? Yes. Do we want that? Do we want that in an episode? <laughs> I mean, we all know how good Brent Spiner is at impressions. I think it would be quite something. <laughs> get him involved. Get him doing it. That'd be amazing. I want to see that now. <laughs> Next short trek is sorted. <laughs> That's it. So, <laughs> Tilly was used well. Her friendship with Burnham is also good to watch. Her connection to Pike and Saru and so on. She just bounces off the rest of the cast brilliantly. She has a unique relationship with all of them. My favourite of the sort of new lineup of characters is Tilly. Like I say, just for that enthusiasm side, because it's always such a, or at least definitely in the last season, such a contrast to what was going yeah. on. Even in this, it is, but she gets her head down and she gets the work done. It's not that character all the time. It's not too in your face. It's done really nicely. Yeah, it's just she doesn't really know how to well she knows how to socialize but she just doesn't know where the line is sometimes Mm. again it's very real it's very watchable and very relatable which is great saru literally evolves in the season (laughs) turns out the sort of death ritual that they have has been a lie told to their people for generations and he evolves after the sphere the mysterious sphere kickstarts it and Again, it's something more for the second half in terms of what it actually does to him as a character. But his fear response is gone. You start to see him being a bit more forthright, a bit less timid, a bit less reserved. There's the bit where Pike comes onto the bridge and Saru's in the chair and Pike just stands next to it as if to say, I'm here, get up. (laughs) It it takes a few seconds. Yeah, it's just, Mm. come on, Saru, I'm here. That's my seat now. And he's like, oh yeah, cool. And then gets up. There's that sense of... He's changed, but he's still kind of the same guy, but there's some things to be wary of there. And I suppose one of Pike's failings is he doesn't really recognise to what extent he has changed or doesn't keep an eye on it as much as he possibly should have. Definitely, but I think that's more from the trust element of, oh, he would tell me if there's something wrong, if there's something different. Which he doesn't. Well, it's because he doesn't understand it to tell him as well. That's the part Yeah, it's the subtle things like him constantly touching at the back of his neck and things. In his head, he's like, I know I should be feeling more fear about this just yeah. now, and I'm not. I like the way they did the evolution. That particular episode was quite scary. I think the way the... The Ba'ul. Ba'ul, yeah. Ba'ul was portrayed by emerging from the... It looked like tar, sort of mm. like black tar. Coming Reminded around. me of the alien that kills Tasha Yar in that TNG episode. 
Yeah, it was kind yeah. of a bit like that, actually. The way it emerged from that, that was quite a scary visual. Yeah. How did the Kelpians become the dominant species when that scary monster is lurking about? Yeah, well, there was all that. We used to be the hunters and they used to be the prey and then somehow they flipped the script on it and have subjugated us for centuries. And actually, that episode, stuff happens in it that I found a bit sketchy. In the sense that, so Saru triggers the evolution of all Kelpians because he feels that it has to because they've been lied to for a long time. And then everyone kind of just goes along with it, but they forget the all-important prime directive here. So the prime directive is we're not Mm. supposed to interfere in the natural evolution of a species. Okay, they've already been interfered with by this symbiotic species that lives with them, and there is a true way to do it. But the thing is, there's all this stuff to consider. So what they're doing is they're forcing evolution on all the Kelpians, whereas it could or should be something that they're made aware of and get to decide whether they want to go through with it now or get to it later. But they don't. They make that decision for them. Oh, yeah, they they force it on. Yeah. And then, it obviously, it escalates because it then becomes <laughs> like a, a genocide attempt. Well, if the Red Angel hadn't shown up, they would have been screwed. If, yeah, yeah, exactly. It evolved to make the situation even worse yeah. at that particular point if you hadn't had the Red Angel come in and resolve that problem at that point. Yeah. But then how does that impact that planet going forward? Who mediates that afterwards? Yeah. It's just kind of like Discovery's then like, yep, so uh, we'll be off now. <laughs> Good luck with the revolution and everything. Yeah, and the thing is, it's complicated in the sense that Saru is a member of Starfleet and he's also a Kelpian. But the Kelpians, well, they don't seem, or certainly his sister doesn't seem surprised that aliens exist. But they also are primitive in that sense. They don't know about the wider intergalactic community that they're not a part of. So the first contact protocol essentially needs to kick in at some point. It's sketchy whether we can even reveal our existence to these people. But Saru is a Kelpian. Mm. Is he equipped to make decisions on behalf of his entire species? Probably not, but as a Starfleet officer, he can't really do that. Well, Starfleet officers shouldn't be able to do that for them because that is forcing something on them. But at the same time, as a Kelpian, Saru could give them that information. He could tell them this Vaharai, I think it was called, isn't fatal. It is just a step in a revolution. We all have to go through it. It's our puberty in effect. We go through this change. It's very violent. Well, it's not violent. It's very it's painful. Dang- well, it's very it's a very painful transition for all of us. But once we're through it, we emerge as what we're supposed to be, or we emerge into the next stage of our life cycle, and then we become something different. We become something more. But there'd be a lot of anxiety around that for other Kelpians. They surely should just be given the choice. Definitely. For them to wait until it happens naturally, or do you want it triggered now? Should it be more of a debate? Mm-hmm. But there was a couple of prime directive debates in those initial episodes this season because they have a similar sort of debate around about Terralisium. Yes. They're human. Do they have the right to know what happened? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Do they have the right to know that we're out here and within, but when you look at the ground, they're not an advanced species. They don't know that we've voyaged to the stars, so does the prime directive apply or not? And both times it comes down to Pike to make calls. It's interesting because in other Star Trek iterations, the Prime Directive is seen as a doctrine that has to be followed absolutely. But the best use of it is it's a guideline. 
And it's a guideline that is down to interpretation. So not all the situations mm. will be the same. So, for example, we've come across a non-warp-capable species who are humans, except they've never lived on Earth. They've lived here for hundreds of years. They don't know how that happened to them. They don't what well, they do. The Red Angel brought them there. But they don't know about advanced technology. They don't know about aliens, etc., etc. They just kind of have a religion that they've built themselves around these events that they've created. So effectively they're well, they're human in terms of in terms of classification, but they're not human in the sense of the humans that are in the Federation. So do we have a responsibility to tell them this? And that's where it's open to interpretation. So you actually see this almost exact same scenario in Enterprise in the Western episode, if you remember it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. They come across a displaced colony of humans, slightly different. They know that aliens exist because there's racism, because they hate the aliens. But Archer makes a decision. They're human. They deserve to know what we've become. There's no prime directive at this point. Not really. There's kind of a code of conduct that they're kind of trying to follow. But Archer mm. says it doesn't apply here because they're human. That's his decision. And the fact is, Pike makes this alternate decision. Yeah, that's a take. And I think it justifies itself well enough. I think the way the episode wraps it up is a bit rubbish, though, where he goes and talks to that guy, and the guy's like, oh, yeah, well, I know, so that's enough for me. I promise I won't tell anyone. It's just a bit too neat. Yeah, it's like this one guy's going to go, oh, how did you get all the lights fixed, man? And they're like, oh, uh, yeah, I uh, plugged this <laughs> thing in, and uh, it works now. Yep, there we go. That's so it. This power cell with yeah. a very long lifespan. As, okay. Yeah, it's just a very good battery. Oh, when did you make that? Oh, just, you know, the other day and yeah. stuff. Also, it has all the connectors <laughs> that you need apparently. Yeah, it also has a USB <laughs> adapter so you can plug all the lights in. Good news. But yeah, I remember that Enterprise episode and I remember a lot of it being framed around Archer being told the Vulcans have a rule where they don't get involved in non-warp capable planets. Mm-hmm. And when they saw Cochrane's ship go out, that's when they got involved at Earth, but don't get involved with pre-warp societies. And I'm pretty sure the captain's log at the end is sort of, someday there'll be a rule that we need to follow. Yeah. <laughs> someday <laughs> you know, there might be a dictate, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, there'll be some sort of directive to tell us how <laughs> we should behave in these particular situations. Some guidelines, maybe. Yeah. Now that I've made a mess of this particular one, <laughs> it's like, next time I will keep my nose out. But in TNG, you see them frequently play around with the prime directive. Oh, yeah. You have that scenario where... Data befriends a little girl and she asks for help essentially and now they're like well, well we're here and we can do this without them knowing that we did it so will we do that it's also at the start of Into Darkness it's essentially the same problem there's a volcano about to erupt and kill all these people if we weren't here they would be killed but the prime directive prevents us from acting because that would be getting in the way of the natural evolution of these people but there won't be a natural evolution because they'll die but we are here yeah, be gone. the compromise is we'll do it but we'll try not to be seen and that's something. Yeah. It's upsetting things later. It's like, okay, so you've resolved a situation now, but you don't know what you've set off balance further down the line. Yeah. It comes up, yeah, like you say, TNG, lots, Voyager quite a bit as well, because they're sort of stumbling across different planets all the time. Yeah. They'll come across a race and they could maybe very easily resolve a situation by applying a bit of technology and can't. Mm-hmm. Or if a particular piece of technology gets out, then it can be used for malicious ends, is yeah. the, the usual thing. You've got an infinite power supply given to someone. What can they do with an infinite power supply? Yeah. It's that sort of element. And there was the crazy captain in the original series that solved it by giving weapons to both sides in a conflict. 
we go. That's the captains that we want to see. Yeah, I'm not getting in the way because they're both equally armed, so they both have an equal chance of killing each other like they did before. Yeah, mutually so assured destruction. Yeah. You're welcome, everyone. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I've restored the balance. It's, like, mm, it's, still, yeah, it's still a sketchy decision. But it's a good example of how it's open to interpretation. And I find that kind of stuff fascinating as in, yeah, let's take this by on a case-by-case basis. I mean, you had a couple episodes of TNG where Picard had to throw the Prime Directive out the window. There was that species that saw their facility that was embedded in the mountains, and he had to reveal himself because they thought he was a god, and he had to disabuse them of that notion. He couldn't just mm. leave them like that. And then there was the other one where Riker was injured, and they had to reveal themselves to get him back because they were going to find out the aliens existed anyway. So... Things like that. And that would be one of those things that you make a report to Starfleet and you're like, okay, here's what happened. The situation got a little bit out of hand, but here's the decision I made to counter it. And I think the Kelpian one, I think the wrong decision was made. I mean, it's more dramatic in the sense that, oh my God, this entire species is going to die in 30 seconds. Then the Red Angel shows up. But I think that's the wrong decision. And I don't think they justify it in any real way. I think it's a debate that was never had. So what you have is you have Saru on the side of, my people deserve to know what they really are. And Pike on the other side saying, that's fine, maybe it's all, but we're not the ones to tell them that. Yeah, it's spot on. They didn't really have the debate. They didn't have time for the debate. And I think the way they try and resolve it in the story is they push the barrel to the extreme of, oh, well, we're going to wipe out all Kelpians now. We're just going to completely get rid of all of them to try and justify the original decision. In a way, it's like, oh, you did the right thing because it turns out they are really, really, really bad. And they sort of blow it up even more. It's like, okay, keeping these people subjugated and essentially euthanizing them when they get too old and start maturing. Yeah. They then take it even further and go, okay, they're going to wipe them all out now. So then that's when Pike's like, okay, well, now we're involved kind of thing. But yeah. also uh, his crew member is responsible in a way. That's where it's not a simple thing because Saru was, sent, well, not abducted, but he was taken. You see in the short trek where Giorgio mm. finds him because he reaches out and they answer. And then it's kind of realised, oh, we shouldn't have done that because they're not like warp capable. This is awkward. We'll take Saru with us. And that's fine. That minimises the contamination. It's only this one guy. So as a Kelpian, he might feel some, or he does feel a duty to his people to help them through this, teach them what he now knows. And that conflicts with his status as a Starfleet officer. And there's another conflict that they don't really go into. Mm. As a Starfleet officer, you cannot tell these people that because they haven't discovered it for themselves. They don't have the mechanism to discover it for themselves. Will they ever discover it on their own? We don't know. But it's not our place to say and then you can have Saru as a Kelpie and say, well, screw that. I'm going to tell them anyway. And then you have his sister, I guess, maybe going from village to village, telling people about it. And then they have to make their own decisions on whether they want to evolve, whether they believe it, all that good stuff. I think there's a whole host of societal stuff that would come out of that because it's changing everything on a fundamental level rather than just waking up after this thing has been forced on them as different people or as Mm. changed people maybe different is too strong a word i think for the kelpians themselves as well they don't know what's just happened to them no they're like what the hell is this yeah yeah so they're built religion granted it's been created to sort of keep them subjugated but 
they don't know that what's just happened to them is a new freedom that they've not had before. They just know that their monoliths have exploded <laughs> and they've lost that fear element. Is the response from that, I've angered the gods in some way? Because it's isolated villages as well. Yeah. It's not like, oh, I'll just pop over and, and ask Brian what's happened over there. It's a massive spread out thing across a planet. It's a massive change. It's a significant change. Significant change and an absolute mess, I imagine, in the clear up afterwards. But obviously the program itself doesn't have any time to linger on that kind of thing. And I mean, don't get me wrong, there's been multiple episodes in Trek Past where you go, oh, I would actually like to see how this now resolves itself because you only get the quick cleanup of, well, uh, we stopped them all killing each other and we uh, engaged them in peace talks. Right, we're off. (laughs) Done. Bye. Yeah. And away the ship goes in the distance. This is where the crew of the Cerritos come in to clean up all this. Yeah, mess. exactly. <laughs> so it's now time for second contact. Yeah. <laughs> Some other ship comes in. They did what? <laughs> Hang on. So it's my job now to stop a war? Okay. <laughs> Great. Okay. Suppose so. Yeah. And obviously it's another example of the Red Angel leading them to that place so they can enable that because they'll need it later on, as we'll find out in the next podcast. Mm. The last thing I kind of wanted to mention was in regards to the spore drive. So we talked extensively about walking back technology and things. So the spore drive is a big piece of discovery invented tech that is a problem because it's never mentioned again in other Star Trek stuff. They're still using warp drive. So what goes wrong with this? And we're offered a number of explanations. So we've got the we don't know how to build a non-human interface, and that's a problem. We can't just be genetically engineering people because that's how Khan was created, and we can't have that again. <laughs> <laughs> Especially in the darkness, we can't have that again. No more. We don't want to create another Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that. That's one explanation for why the work on it stagnates. But it's kind of not good enough, I suppose, in the sense that maybe someone will figure it out eventually after 200 years or 150 years. So... Then you have, whenever they jump, it hurts the network or it hurts the the beings that live inside it. Again, let's stop doing that because it kills them is another valid explanation. After that's kind of dropped, but they have a couple of scenarios where it's, we must use the spore drive just this once. And I was worried that they were going to fall into this trap of, are we going to just keep finding just this once excuses to use it? In which case, why has it just been written off as a thing we can't use anymore if we're just going to keep finding excuses to use it or finding scenarios where it needs to be used. And I think that would have been a dangerous trap to fall into because it would just have been so ridiculous. We need to get somewhere, but we only have 10 minutes. No, don't worry, we can get there instantly. All right, just this once again. (laughs) (laughs) I like the way that they came up with it, which is it's damaging the network for them to do it. And eventually, if if they kill off the network, then they kill off the ability to use the drive anyway. As well as the whole universe, apparently. As well as the universe and everything. Even the number 42 will be gone. It's all done. I kind of like the way that they came across that. But like you say, because we know through obviously the future shows that there's not ships sort of popping up all over the place via this technology. Well, we had an entire show about how we can't get home quickly. 
Yeah, exactly. We cannot traverse this large distance. It's going to take us a while to get home. Yeah. If it had been, well, it turns out there's this thing in the database, and we could just, you know, maybe just what just this once, just since this we once. are, since we are seventy odd years from home, or whatever the line is. What it is, every idea. ship has, like every captain gets told about it as a justice once scenario. So if you ever yeah. get stranded really far from Federation space. You have the schematics to build this device that will get you home instantly, but you can only use it to do that. <laughs> yeah, there's this design sitting in the database of how to create this engine that will <laughs> yeah. let you do this. Don't use it. I've got to say, though, that episode where they were in the network, the visualization in the network was the ship sort of half in, half out. Being the eaten. visuals in yeah. that, the way they designed that looked amazing. Yeah. It looked really cool. Having this sort of ship half in this world, sort of crash landed on the ground, but not yeah. quite. And it was that bit where they were trying to convince we need to go in and get Tilly because mm. she's one of us. And Pike gives that rousing speech about one of our Starfleet sisters is in danger and we have an obligation to go after them. I would do it for any one of you. So we're all doing this. Mm. Yeah, this is a, yeah, let's listen to this. It doesn't matter if we'll probably die to save this one person. Pike has really convinced me here. <laughs> it's the, uh, well, the ship's going to be sort of half exposed and then it just starts sort of tipping further and further into the thing. Everyone on the starboard side. <laughs> or the port side. Yeah, exactly, let's side try and weigh it down a little bit, <laughs> shall we? Everyone hanging off a nacelle at the <laughs> other end, just trying to, you know, yeah. trying to make sure that they don't tip in. I said that frequently in my reviews. They need to arrive at a position on the spore drive. Are they using it because it's important? for this mission, or are they not? And then after this mission is over, they need to either retire it or not. I mean, they do solve it in a way that we'll get to again in the next episode. Mm-hmm. The Amazing Spider-Man 2 of podcasts. Well, we promise <laughs> we're not going to talk about this now, but later. <laughs> I'm just teasing it the whole time. But it's only really used twice early on, isn't it? So they use it to get to Terralysium because it's way far in the Beta Quadrant. Mm-hmm. And then they use it to jump into the atmosphere. Or into the rings. Now, I don't think it's used again. Yes. Other than entering the network. Other than entering the network, I don't think it's used. I'm trying to remember. It, it might get used later on in the... It gets used later on in the season. In, the in season, fact, they just stop yeah. mentioning it later on. They just use it. But Pike's justification in that second episode was fine. Starfleet has tasked me with figuring this out, and it's a top priority. They'll give us dispensation now. I'm not even going to ask. I'm just going <laughs> to... Yeah, we're just going to go for it. Yeah, Yeah. we've been told that we're allowed to use what we can to get there. And there's a reason that they've put him on Discovery to investigate these signals. Yeah. It's not so that he can be slow to get there. Yeah, I thought it was funny, though. The first episode, it's we're at warp. We're just going at normal warp drive because the spore drive isn't a thing we can use anymore. The second episode. Oh, we're back using this again. Okay. Yeah, so we're going to convert this back to sort of a normal engine room. It's like, where's the rest of the engine room normally? <laughs> well, it was a compartment, isn't it? It's an engineering yeah, compartment. It just yeah. happened to have this massive void space on the ship that we could use to make yeah. the spore drive. Well, the ship was retrofitted specifically for it. So, mm. yeah. Oh, yeah. I have no problem with that. They also have a garden, remember? Oh, yeah, they have the spore yeah. garden. <laughs> I keep forgetting there's a garden for the door. Yeah. Because you look at that set and it always makes me think, oh, that's engineering, but it's yeah. not. It's no. just the spore drive. Just a compartment. Yeah. So I think we've covered the first half of the season. We find Spock. He is diagnosed as being out of his mind, and we need to solve that. <laughs> but he gives coordinates that take us to Talos 4, which, if you've seen The Cage or the two part original series episode, The Menagerie, you'll know what that means. And you'll know what going there 
carries a penalty of as well. So when we come back for our next episode, we will discuss that. We'll discuss the rest of the season. Now that Spock is part of the cast for a bit, Ethan picks Spock. We get to see him speak in language that isn't gibberish next time. And we'll cover the remainder of the season. And that will be very soon. That will appear very soon, hopefully. Hopefully before the third season starts, that'd be nice. That'd be a good, that'd be a good benchmark to aim for. I don't know. I kind of feel like having it as one of our great lost episodes. <laughs> the, uh... <laughs> yeah, We could always talk about how great that podcast was, but just no one had the chance to listen to it. Yeah. We'll never know. We'll never know what they thought the second half of Discovery Season 2. <laughs> what a shame. I look forward to discussing it with you next time. Yes. So do you have anything last to say about the first half of season two? Did the first half get you kind of excited about the second half? I can't remember if there was a hiatus or not at the time it was airing. Do you know what? I can't remember either. I thought it was a really good first half, a good setup to a mystery. Like I say, Pike coming in as captain, breath of fresh air in there. They sort of retrospectively fixed a few character dynamics and things that brightened it up a bit. And yeah, I thought it was a really good first half of a season. Yeah, I'd agree. Set things up nicely. Whether the payoff is good or not is something we'll have to figure mm-hmm. out as we go next time. So as we know from Picard, great setup doesn't equal great payoff in all cases. In fact, in most cases, I would argue the payoff is usually mm. disappointing. But we'll get to that. But no, good first half of the season. Pike is great. Seeing the Enterprise was great, even though it was only in part of one episode. The stories were interesting. There are some flaws there, as we've discussed with the Prime Directive and so on. So we'll see what the second half of the season's like once we get to that. And I think splitting it in two was a good call, to be fair, because a lot to cover. Also, having seats instead of making a stand during the podcast was very nice of you. Yes, and no fortune cookies. (laughs) There was the fortune that the cleaning crew missed that was stuck under the table. Okay, so that was it. Our discussion of the first half of Star Trek Discovery Season 2, subtitled The Search for Spock, because that's what essentially they were doing. Most of it, they were looking for it. I want to thank the YouTuber, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of his name, so I apologise, Gorkum Burke Agar Ejars, cover of Star Trek Discovery's main theme. And his YouTube channel will be in the show notes. Very nice work. Sounds very good. It's probably making me sound even better as we speak. The podcast can be found on Neil Before Blog, on Facebook and Twitter. And you can subscribe to the podcast of any podcasting network, Spotify, iTunes, anything else. Might even be on Amazon Music by the time you listen to this. I certainly requested it be there, so let's hope it is. If you want to talk to us, hit us up on social media or on neilbeforeblog.co.uk with comments as to what you thought about our discussion. Chris, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. I'm going to beam you back to wherever I got you from, wherever that is. The coordinates are laid and I wouldn't worry about it. I don't even need to pay attention. So, energizing. And I hope you'll join us on the next Kneel Before Pod. Thank you.